Welcome back to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkoff, managing editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, senior reporter at Jezebel. This week, it's Halloween week, um, and this podcast is coming out on Halloween, so let's start with some Halloween news. This week, Donald Trump handed out Halloween candy to children, so like under 10, of the press. And here's how it went. I cannot believe the media produced such beautiful children. How the media did this, I don't know. Come on over here. Who likes this? Well, you have no weight problems. That's the good news, right? So that's Donald Trump commenting on the weight of these girls, little girls. This is the only way he knows how to talk to females. Anytime I see Donald Trump with children, I have a visceral reaction of disgust, and it doesn't matter what he's doing because I cannot separate that from these two moments of Donald Trump with kids because I'm not a parent, but if I were, I would feel very uncomfortable letting Donald Trump in, like, near my children, but also I would feel uncomfortable being near Donald Trump in the first place. So, um... I mean, he's an equal opportunity perv, like, to adult women and to children, To children, right. So, these are the two things I think about. One... One of them is significantly worse, but they're both horrible. They're both, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how to talk about this. I don't, like, I don't, I don't know how to. I feel like I'm doing something wrong when I talk about it. I know because it's so disgusting. It's, but like, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be like very serious and be like, <laughs> it's, a, it's not. It's this is Donald Trump did this stuff. This is just us reporting things that he did, and then people should not forget that this happened. That the man who's the president of the United States is also the man who saw a ten-year-old girl riding an escalator and said. Thursday night. You're going up the escalator? I'm going to be dating her in 10 years. Can you believe it? Or the man who, on a talk show, was talking about his infant daughter and, and was imagining... she has. And what good legs she has. And that one day, hopefully, she'll have nice big breasts. Now, Donna, what does Tiffany have of yours and what does Tiffany have of Marla's? Well, I think that she's got a lot of moral and she's really a beautiful baby and she's uh, she's got... Um, She's got Marla's legs. We don't know whether or not she's got this part yet, but time will tell. It's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I just had to say that. This week on the podcast, we are going to be talking about a number of weenies, a number of very important weenies. And we'll also be talking to Megan Reynolds, a Jezebel staff writer and host of our sister podcast, Dirtcast. She'll be talking about the women's convention, which was this weekend in Detroit. And this woman in a skirt suit next to me kept like snapping instead of clapping and going like, "Mm, yes, and just doing a lot of things. But first, our week in weenies. Our first weenie is Paul Manafort and also Rick Gates, his business associate. They were indicted on Monday on money laundering and tax and foreign lobbying charges. So this is part of Bob Mueller's um, special investigation into collusion during the campaign with Russia. So the indictment reads, according to The New York Times, Manafort used his hidden overseas wealth to enjoy a lavish lifestyle in the United States without paying taxes on that income, dot, dot, dot. As part of this scheme, Manafort and Gates repeatedly provided false information to financial bookkeepers, tax accountants, and legal counsel, among others. So Manafort was was Donald Trump's campaign manager during the campaign. Since then, he's done just like a number of weenie-ish things. 
by weenie-ish, I mean, like, definitely illegal, like, <laughs> suspicious things having to do with taking meetings with Russian officials, like, being generally shady. And so now we're finally seeing an indictment. It's not for anything having to do with, like, that specific part, but I feel like a lot of the times, like, when I'm thinking, I <laughs> Uh, tell me, stop me if I'm sounding like an idiot, but I feel like a lot of the times and like when you're learning about the mob or something, they don't catch them for like being in the mob. They catch them for something adjacent, like right. some sort of financial crime that's easier to pin them down for. Right. Obviously, he hasn't been convicted for, of anything, but he's been indicted. It makes me wonder like what Bob Mueller, if they ever pin something on Donald Trump, like what thing it will be. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Donald Trump's books, like financial books, are just like scribbles. Yeah. It's like scribbles of a theoretically ailing, like dementia-ridden man. Yes. Like he's a character who, like in a movie, if he like killed a man or like killed like 20 men and then he <laughs> like went on new- the news camera and is like, hey, everybody, I killed a man and here's the body. But then like the body's gone. And for some reason, they just like can't trace it back to Donald Trump. And he's everybody knows Donald he's a criminal. Knows that he's that. And then like finally they get him on like credit card fraud for he he bought like he yeah. bought like gum on somebody else with somebody else's like credit card machine. Yeah. And he gets yeah he and gets then he's like, the they're like oh, i got him <laughs> setting him to jail for exactly. one year <laughs> i mean he said that he said he could shoot somebody on fifth avenue and nobody would do anything about it they say i have the most loyal people did you ever see that where i could stand in the middle of fifth avenue and shoot somebody and i wouldn't lose any voters okay it's like incredible and you know what? Metaphorically, metaphorically, he it feels did. like he did. <laughs> Our next weenie is huh, another weenie we've definitely talked about before. Steve King. So Steve King is a congressman from Iowa who, amongst his racist beliefs, is also, also believes that human life begins at conception. And in January, he proposed a bill called the Heartbeat Protection Act of 2017. Um, the bill, if enacted into law, would throw doctors into jail and or fine them for performing abortions after the point at which they can detect a heartbeat or if they fail to check for the heartbeat or if they fail to tell the mother that there is a heartbeat. So and that and again, this point is at six weeks, which is before most women even learn that they are pregnant. So, yeah. So this, like, tactic, the heartbeat, like, ban when you can detect a heartbeat um, is something that anti-choicers do a lot. These bills are proposed, like, in many, many states. So it's not, like, something that Steve King thought of. This is Mm -hmm. something that, like, the anti-choice movement is, like, here is an option for people who hate abortion. Right. What's scary about it is that it's now being proposed at a federal level, um, and it's it's definitely unconstitutional. I mean, it essentially is an abortion ban, like all out abortion ban because of how early the ban goes into effect. And what's also scary about this is that it's now being debated in the House Judiciary Committee as of on Wednesday will be the first hearing on it. It just goes to show how aggressive and successful anti-abortion efforts are across the state that lot like bills like this that should not even make it to a committee hearing are 
getting way farther than they should. Yeah, because Steve King at, the, in this Congress. This also isn't even the first time that Steve King has proposed this. Like he proposed yeah. this like in January of this year. Like they keep doing this. And like these things are very unlikely to pass the Senate. But like the House right now is so like right, right far right wing and nutty. But one thing I just want to bring up, Moira Weigel wrote this very good article in The Atlantic that I think Stasa Edwards at Jezebel wrote about also, like inspired by The Atlantic article about how the ultrasound became political and how like the ultrasound, how technology contributes to how we view pregnancies and like development of babies. So like before we had an ultrasound machine, we would never think that a fetus had personhood. At six weeks. It's just right. because we have this thing and are able to put it and hear something that we associate with humanity. Right. That people are even, like, allowed to say that. Yeah. Sometimes I think about how far technology has taken us. Like, we put a man on the moon, like, 50, more than 50 years ago. <laughs> but you know what? Women still aren't equal. <laughs> and it looks like they're you're going to become more I unequal. feel like any technology <laughs> so, that we find, somebody will figure out how to use it to, like, fuck women's lives up. <laughs> or and, and continue to keep brown people down. Like Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Our next and final weenie is former President George H.W. Bush. I feel like the Bushes have been in the news a lot recently because – Well, specifically George W. Bush, he was the worst living president. And now we have a president who's worse than him. And so now everyone's like nostalgic for W. And that's like an insane thing to be. Like people need to be able to hold two ideas in their heads at once. (laughs) And I hate how Donald Trump has just turned out. He's like normalized most forms of racism. Like if you're not marching down the street in a white hood – then like, you're like a cute old get, man that yeah. we miss. And then and then like and then and also conversely, like saying like I hate Nazis is like a bold stance. It's like, whoa, hero. Yeah. Hero. Ew. No. Anyway, George H. W. Bush, who is so old and so frail, is now this is spurred not by Donald Trump, but by the Harvey Weinstein allegations of widespread sexual harassment and assault. Now like people after Weinstein, people in all industries are feeling emboldened amazingly to say this person assaulted me, this person harassed me. So two actresses, Heather Lind and Jordana Grolnick, have both alleged that George H.W. Bush groped them from behind during a photo op. And then late last week, a third woman, author Christina Baker Klein, also alleged that she had been groped by George H.W. Bush. And Grolnick and Klein both say that he did kind of variations on a on a groping theme. So <laughs> Christina Baker Klein writes about this in an article in Slate. Let me read it. He cocked his head at me for a moment, then said, you're beautiful. Thank you, I said. You're a writer. Yes. You want to know my favorite book, he whispered. I had to lean close to hear him. Yes. What is it? By now, the photographer was readying the shot. My husband stood on one side of the wheelchair and I stood on the other. President Bush put his arm around me, low on my back. His comic timing was impeccable. David Coppa feel, he said, and squeezed my butt (gasps) hard just as the photographer snapped the photo. 
So from a Deadspin article, Deadspin reported on the Grolnick allegations. They write, reached for comment, Bush spokesperson Jim McGrath provided the following statement. At age 93, President Bush has been confined to a wheelchair for roughly five years, so his arm falls on the lower waist of people with whom he takes pictures. To try to put people at ease, the president routinely tells the same joke. And on occasion, he has patted women's rears in what he intended to be a good-natured manner. Some have seen it as innocent. Others clearly view it as inappropriate. To anyone he has offended, President Bush apologizes most sincerely. Wow. That so is, they're like, yeah, he does say that. that. Is so if, that's just basically saying he's a disabled man, so it's okay for him to sexually harass women. Because it's, he's like lower to the ground, low, so his yeah. hand goes on people's butts. I'm pretty sure that that doesn't happen. Somehow his hand doesn't make that same mis- mis- good-natured mistake with men. I want to say <laughs> something, and I don't want to be viewed as like, insensitive. Okay. I have sat down before. I'm sitting now. That's the position you're in in a wheelchair. Correct. And I've taken pictures while sitting, but I've never grabbed somebody's butt. Without their consent. But while sitting while in a picture, I've just never even done it once. Never even done it. (laughs) It's never occurred to me. Right. Is that... No, I don't think that's insensitive. I think that's kind of his logic. Yeah. Like he's sitting down all the time, so he has to grab somebody's butt. I think that's his... (laughs) logic and justifying it yeah. i think the logic is more there's a woman next to me and like i want to touch her butt, to my head i want to and i want to touch it and that's and i can get away with it so i'm gonna do it i think yeah. that's the logic and i'm a former president so i all american butts are my butts my. <laughs> i think that's how they feel what really disturbs me about all of this is how easy it is for people to justify it i think it shows how entrenched sexual harassment and assault is and how normalized it is because the fact that a former president felt okay admitting to it but then and then like saying like but it's okay and this is why when that's never okay like that was his public statement (laughs) that he felt very very comfortable with like like a politician or former politician they don't release like risky statements like they're like pr statements are the most like anodyne like right, safe and that's not even comfortable <laughs> like n- like they never say anything and that statement like thought they they really thought that they were being safe and yeah like, they were being like kind this, and guys, like generous explain it let me let yeah. me handle this <laughs> And if that's how you view sexual assault and harassment, like that to me, that shows how deep this problem is. Now joining us is Megan Reynolds, staff writer at Jezebel and also host of our sister podcast, Dirtcast. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, talk to us about what the Women's Convention was, who organized it, what are we even talking about? So the Women's Convention was a three-day event in Detroit. It was organized by the Women Behind the Women's March. There were all sorts of panels. It was, I think it was meant to sort of arm women with a set of tools that they could use to continue 
to resist the Trump administration Mm -hmm. and to organize and to sort of maybe reinvigorate some of the momentum that seems to have been lost since the Women's March in January, since it does seem like nothing. I mean, it seems like, you know, we were supposed to be protesting all the time and doing stuff. And then we had the march, then everything just sort of... Yeah. Was it that? Was it reinvigorating? What an interesting question. (laughs) Um, I will say that I think that I personally was not the target audience for this event, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that I am indeed a woman who does not enjoy the Trump administration. (laughs) You do not enjoy it. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the Trump administration. (laughs) So, but for me personally, I still did not feel as invigorated or as moved as I could have. But for all the women that I spoke to, every single person that I talked to mentioned the words empowerment. They said they were attending because they felt like they needed to do something. It, it, they, they were getting sick of sitting at home feeling hopeless mm-hmm. and that this, even just by showing up, that this felt like something that they were that they were doing. Um, I don't know if anyone – I asked a lot of people if, like, if they like, gained any tools to go back to their communities for organization and everyone was kind of like sort of maybe like some said yes, some said no. I mean it's hard. So think about if – as you said, it's not for people who like us who like work at Jezebel who every day yeah. we're like writing about these things and we're doing it in a very specific way from a very specific Correct. angle. Right. It's for people who went to the Women's March and then now they're like protests to go to if you're in a big city, but there's nothing to do if you're not there. Right. I mean, nothing like concrete to do if you're not right. there. So like you went to some panels. Tell us about the panels you went to and practically what were you doing? Um, pra- <laughs> oh, <laughs> Is that man. a good question? Thank you. It's a really good question, Joanna. Thank you. <laughs> um, the day was broken out into like four or five chunks and there were at least seven to eight panels during each chunk, which is very overwhelming because the Kobo Center in Detroit is also enormous. Mm-hmm. So what... I was doing on a day-to-day was trying to get into various panels, arriving between 10 minutes early to maybe five minutes after the panel started. Every single time this occurred, I was not able to gain access to the panel because they were already, they were were full. Yeah. Um, That's like a good thing, Which is a good thing. The two panels that I was most interested in attending that I could not gain access to because they were full was one about um, confronting white womanhood. (laughs) <laughs> what was that about? Um, from the program description, it is a workshop about how white women can confront their own white womanhood in order to be part of an intersectional feminist movement, in order to be a better ally, etc. Um, that one was full, and they said that they were going to do another session of it because it proved to be so popular the next day. I also tried to go to one about how to be a good ally. That was also full. That was what I heard from standing outside the door before I left to go get a sandwich. So I was very hungry. The two panels that I did actually manage to get a seat at and like get in were one um, fighting for si- for survivors of sexual assault in the age of Betsy DeVos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Rose McGowan and Amber Tamblin were there. How was that? Rose McGowan was wearing a yellow bandana around her neck. It was an ACLU bandana, I think. Yeah. In addition to her um her like fancy like I'm a celebrity, but I'm 
at this thing dress. Um, she didn't really talk much. Amber Tamblin talked for like five minutes maybe. And then the rest of the women, they basically ceded the floor to the rest of the women who are on the panel mm-hmm. who are all survivors of campus sexual assault. That panel was fine. It was a lot of stuff. I mean, again, I was trying very hard to remove the fact that like, I already know all this stuff because I do this for a living, that kind of stuff. Um, It seemed helpful to, and it seemed affirming to the people that I was sitting nearby. I also got hit on the head with a boom mic twice at this channel. Um, And this woman in a skirt suit next to me kept like snapping instead of clapping and going like, "Mm, yes. And just doing a lot of it. I had a really hard time. I had like a really difficult time with that because I'm a monster. Um, But everyone seemed to be enjoying it. It just didn't feel like I was looking for the tools I was promised. And you did, it didn't feel like there was like a solid takeaway. It was more no. just like, here are the values that we all kind mm-hmm. of already agree yeah, about. Like, here's what we agree about. Like, here, oh, you tell your story. I'm going to tell my story. All of these stories, these are bad snaps, et cetera. It kind of, based on what you're saying, mm-hmm. sounds like the embodiment of like Pantsuit Nation, like a Facebook group for like, and just like everyone got together and like yeah. talk. Like, I don't want to be like so dismissive. No, of no. It. I mean, no. But I didn't. Okay, I didn't mean that as like a super negative thing because I think that there's a lot of people, and if, and even for me, in the beginning, I found that to be a very like comforting space. But I think that for some people, like that's not so helpful. And I think for a lot of people it is. I also think, so that was like part of my response. The other part was that like I have friends who live out in like, like for us, we live in New York City and we we work in a very liberal place and we live in a liberal place. And it's sort of like this bubble, this like safe bubble for many of us in this part of the country. But Mm -hmm. like most people don't have that. And I think. For most people, like I talk to, to some of my female friends who feel very disconnected from other progressive people. And mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know how to have these interactions. Like at work, I feel so isolated. And like in daily life, like I feel like I'm not able to do enough because they live out like in the suburbs where there's not going to be like a protest on the street, you know, like right. every weekend or whatever. So like I can see something like the women's convention being really helpful for people who don't have the access to mm-hmm. like everyday like I guess yeah conversations and like yeah that like we do and I think that and that's what I also sort of meant by like pantsuit nation I feel like depending on where you are in the country that's like a more helpful way to stay connected than it is like depending yeah no I think that others that's exactly I think that's exactly who the convention was for that I could tell like that's exactly who yeah seemed to be like every person I spoke to that's sort of that's what their vibe was like and it all that all made sense to me yeah and I think that's great I think we need that I I also see why like for you and me and and like Joanna mm-hmm. and I'm not speaking for Joanna but like <laughs> I would never speak for <laughs> honestly like, how dare you see <laughs> how it wouldn't be as invigorating for right. us just because that that is like very, I'm very privileged to be able to say that that yes. is sort of my daily experience. Like your and I, Yeah. And thank God for that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, and then there are also ones that were like grassroots activism and like how to do something in your community. And I imagine, did you guys hear anything about how those panels were? I would um, imagine those were more helpful. I think those probably were more helpful. Um, I did not manage to speak to anybody who had, I was just approaching people at random through the haze of a mild hangover, which really dropped my my inhibitions, <laughs> my nervousness about approaching strangers. Definitely. Um, I mean, the point of a convention, mm-hmm. I thought, was to convene. Yes. And to be fair, we were convened in one area for many moons that entire <laughs> weekend. But I didn't really observe anyone, like, speaking to each other organically. Mm-hmm. It was all just, like, teacher-student, panelist, mm-hmm. audience. And I think, I don't know how you would have made it such that the other, hap- such that there were conversations. Like, you can't force conversations, obviously. So, and I don't know what goes into convention. So what do you feel like the takeaways were? That everyone is still really mad at the administration. Everyone is really excited to do something to, 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 to another like another women's march, another convention. They Everyone wants to take action against it. And everyone I spoke to was very hopeful about whatever experience they had at the convention. Um, I think they were just very, everyone was excited and everyone was hopeful, which felt really nice to hear because it's, you know, it's very hard to lose hope. Yeah. And I think these like conventions are so like weird and tiring mm-hmm. and whatever, but like, what is the alternative? Kind exactly. Of? You kind of just have to keep doing them. Yeah. I mean, they are, they, they sound exhausting to organize. Yeah. Attending, it can be exhausting as well. But I think if ultimately, if the feeling that you're leaving with is one of, of hope and yeah. empowerment, then you know great just great keep keep on that's (laughs) it's good it's good i think it's good Now it's time for How to Handle the Dicks, where we take a minute to discuss the ways we're coping with such a relentlessly stressful administration. We're only like 280-so days in. I can't believe that it's already November. Uh, like, I mean, it's 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 not. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. We are... Imminent. It's imminent. It's imminent, it's Joanna. Imminent. Thank you. Rude. Definitely it's imminent. almost November. Oh, my goodness. I just want wow. to... I just... It's like my dad is always like... Oh, can you believe you're this age? And I'm like, I'm not that age. I'm oh. a year younger Joanne than that is age. Joanne a person when like <laughs> oh, he in rushes second, you. He rushes me. He when, pre-ages me. Mm. Do you know in, what I mean? I do. In like elementary school when everyone thought it was so funny to be like, oh, at the end of December, like, oh, I'll see you next year. Joanna would be in the corner yeah, being like, days. fuck you all. That's n- You're not <laughs> I funny. just don't like to pre-rush time. I, I think understand. we should enjoy the last two days of October. <laughs> This comes out on October 31st. Boo. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) And we should really. We should celebrate. We should relish. Cherish. This month. Our remaining day of October. Okay. So um, it's not. No. Yeah. Well, what are we doing to how to handle to handle the dicks? I, on Friday, saw one of my favorite 
definitely one of my favorite movies of this year. Oh my god. It was A Killing of a Sacred Deer. Oh, I really want to see that. The Yorgos Lanthimos movie. It was so spooky and beautiful and like perfect and weird. You do realize, Stephen, we're in this situation because of you. Oh, I loved it. I recommend to everyone. It was really, it was really upsetting. But if you're into kind of upsetting spooky movies, is it scary to the? Are there jump scares? It's not a jump scare movie. It's more of like a slow burn moral hell. Oh, perfect! I love those. A hell of psychological torment. Oh my god, that's amazing. It's my favorite kind of movie. Yeah, I hate jump scares. Basically, Colin Farrell, a little summary. Colin Farrell plays a cardiothoracic surgeon. Nicole Kidman plays his wife, also a doctor. I think an optometrist. Um, It's like kind of, it doesn't really matter what kind of doctor she is. And they have two kids. And then there's this actor in it who plays like kind of this young boy who visits Colin Farrell all the time. He was Georgian Dunkirk, if we all saw Dunkirk. Did not. Okay. Anyway, it's just very spooky. And it's all about medicine. And it's all about like morals and revenge Ooh, i love it and, <laughs> and medical mysteries oh you're gonna love it okay that is a that is a really that sounds great two thumbs up from me oh. <laughs> that sounds really good guys what are you doing so i um i have a slightly different story to share you have because i thought we were gonna talk about like Sp- like spooky I know things. we've gotten kind of derailed from spooky things and I mean my my movie's spooky yeah that's true the you yoga yeah. class was scary it was in the dark <laughs> it was dark and hot like, I almost well, stepped on someone on the way out so because they let you lay in my corpse pose for a long time and I just had to it was very traumatizing please continue well so this is a this is like a real life spooky st- story I learned about recently um politics related Uh-oh. and you may already know it because so Gizmodo wrote about this like a month ago in September. Do you, any of you guys know who Stanislav Petrov is? I do not. So he he died last month. He wasn't well known during his life, but he should be because... So basically, on September 26, 1983, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was 44, and he was working... Uh, and I'm reading Gizmodo right now, working at a missile detection bunker south of Moscow. And on this day, he received a message that there were five nuclear missiles headed from the United States to Moscow. Five nuclear missiles. And this was from a confirmed military report. It was like his system was like, this is definitely happening. And it was his job to send that up the chain of command. Uh And then... Basically, the Soviet Union would have retaliated and, like, would have bombed, probably would have bombed America with, like, even more nuclear weapons um, or definitely could have. He didn't have a time limit on this, but obviously, like, these nuclear missiles are on their way. And he's the only one working that day. Like, he has to, like, figure out what he's going to do. Oh, my God. Um, And this is his quote. He said, all I had to do was reach for the phone to raise the direct line of our to our top commanders but I couldn't move. I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan. That would encourage you to move, one might think. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a hot frying pan. I mean, I get, I get the feeling, but yeah. I understand the paralysis, but anyway. So he 
I don't know what I would do in that situation. It's throw up is what I, <laughs> I would mean, do. I mean, not not one of the three of us is equipped to deal with that <laughs> right. for sure. Well, he, he did note that, like, unlike most military officers, he didn't have formal training. He had, like, a civilian education. Oh. And he credits that with him, like, thinking in a less, like, rote, like, I must always obey my superiors. Right. Like, like, it gave him more of an ability to think for himself. So he actually decided that logically it didn't make sense. Like, even though the system was saying this thing very confidently, he he decided that logically this just didn't make sense. Like, this is not the amount of missiles that America would send. Like, the mm-hmm. timing doesn't make sense. Like, uh-huh. just, like, all the context around it does not fit mm-hmm. for, like, why would they do this right now? And, yeah. like, what would our response be? And they would know that. So he was just like, no, this doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do anything about it. And he did it. And... That was the right call to make because it it didn't happen. The U.S. didn't launch right. those missiles. It was, like, a mistake. And Oh, my God. So what was he seeing? So it was a false alarm. Jesus five Christ. birds. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Five big birds. But. Yeah, just five really big, huge birds. <laughs> five. It was actual big bird in his family. They were flying just uh, around. And because he did that, we averted <laughs> World War Three. <III. laughs> And and it's scary to think about, and it's especially scary to think about right now mm. because as we, it's on, we're on the precipice. I feel as Donald we're on Trump the precipice can have, of like, going to nuclear war with can North have, like, Korea. A glaucoma, like floating, <laughs> like thing in his eye, and think yeah, it's yeah. a missile coming to it's the true. U.S. And he'll true. be like, retaliate. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thank you to Jezebel staff writer Megan Reynolds, who is also the host of Dirtcast, our celebrity podcast. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Monda Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Dan Powell. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show, and you can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Tuesday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Mm. <laughs>